Welcome to Keith Knight, Don't Tread on Anyone and the Libertarian Institute. Today, I am joined by Philip W. Magnus, a senior research faculty and director of research and education at the American Institute for Economic Research. He is also the author of 1619 Project, a critique. Mr. Magnus, Dr. Magnus, I should say, where is the best place to find your collection of research? I'd say the uh, main area to come to is AIER.org. Uh, that's our website, and I maintain a, a, a continuous publication stream on there. Uh, it also has uh, links and everything under my profile to the academic work that I put out and the books as well. Why is studying history important? Well, you know, that this goes back to uh, something that uh, F.A. Hayek and Ludwig von Mises and several uh, great classical liberal thinkers pointed out is our perception of the past, including policy events and economic events of the past, shapes how we understand similar events in the present. Uh, so I always give the example, the classic one is the Great Depression. Uh, the fact that there's a lot of misinformation out there about the way that the Great Depression unfolded. Uh, there are claims that the New Deal was the uh, solution to the Great Depression, that it worked. It turns out the empirical evidence is, uh, is not very strong on that. It shows actually the opposite effect. But uh, the widespread perception of that has led to uh, now uh, basically a century of recurring attempts to repeat the Great Depression story every time that there's an economic downturn. Uh, so it's a classic example of a bad understanding of the past as leading to bad policies in the present. How can I differentiate between a good historian and a bad historian? Well, there are a lot of bad historians today. Uh, we see this all around us. I've tangled with a few of them. Nancy McLean and Kevin Cruz come to mind. Uh, but I would even go so far as to say that the majority of uh, scholars that are coming out of the elite ranks of the uh, history profession, the Ivy Leagues, uh, and also top tier state universities are not the most scrupulous individuals. Uh, they seem to be political activists on the left, particularly the far left, uh, first and foremost, and scholars may be a, a tertiary uh, effect of their entire profession. Uh, and I, I see this as a very alarming trend, but it's something that is borne out in the empirical data. The history field has moved in a deeply politicized direction toward the left for the last 15 to 20 years in particular. And with that, you've seen a decline in scholarly rigor. Uh, so it used to be the case that, uh, you, you know, you think a historian knows something about their subject matter. And if they say uh, a factual claim about an event in the past, uh, you can take it as a pretty good authority that they probably know what they're talking about. I would say that's no longer the case. Uh, oftentimes, historians not only make mistakes about the past, uh, they willfully misrepresent it because they are trying to argue a political point in the present day. So I would say when reading historical claims, approach them with a scrutinizing eye, look to primary sources, uh, go dig up the documents themselves, especially when they quote somebody. Uh, so I just tangled with another historian, Quinn Slobodian, uh, who published all these articles purporting to show that Ludwig von Mises was a racist. And uh, I started looking at the quotes that he was using. It turns out he edited the quotes, chopped them in half, and would remove parts of the quotation where Mises had condemned racism and eugenics and all these horrible uh, uh, policies that the pro uh, progressives were really advancing. Uh, so it's really you know, doing the homework, doing the uh, the necessary work to check the sources. But unfortunately, it means that uh, we as scrutinizing readers and interpreters of the past have our own homework every time we encounter something like this in scholarship. 
who are some of the best historians out there who go straight to the primary sources and are able to uh, use a good understanding of history to build context and give the reader a real understanding of what happened and why? Yeah. So this is a, 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 a an ever smaller field, unfortunately. Uh, some of some that will be uh, familiar to your readers and your listeners. Uh, so David Beto, uh, who's a uh, professor emeritus at the University of Alabama, uh, has done some top-notch, superb uh, excavation of historical material, uh, especially on African American history, uh, its relation to uh, civil society and institutions around there. Currently, he's working on Rose Wilder Lane and Zora Neale Hurston as early libertarian voices of the 20th century, uh, and just really doing the the deep homework to dig up their work. Um, you know, I, I say look around to see who some of the scholars that are working, uh, not necessarily at the elite institutions, the Ivy League, uh, but some of the best historians today, you find them at teaching colleges. Uh, you find them at smaller institutions. Uh, my friend Marcus Witcher uh, is a uh, another just superb scholar who uh, published, co-authored a book with Rachel Ferguson, who's a, uh, a moral philosophy and economics uh, professor, and this is looking at, uh, it's the title of the book's Black Liberation Through the Marketplace. It's looking at free market approaches to dealing with the problems of segregation and racism in the past. Uh, this is not something that's coming out of Yale or Harvard. It's coming out of uh, two very small school uh, institutions of professors that are mainly involved in teaching. And yet I would say that they have produced something that's upended their entire field uh, because the field is just not politically interested in looking at how markets work. What are some of the most misunderstood or underappreciated historical events? Well, I'll focus on my own area, and this is the economics of slavery. And the economics of slavery is a deeply complicated subject. Uh, it's constantly discussed in things like the 1619 Project, and uh, it's popular among elite institutions. They talk about the new history of capitalism, but this is an ideological history. What they're trying to do is tie the notion of capitalism, and by that they mean laissez-faire, free market capitalism, to the institution of slavery and say that the two were wedded at the hip, uh, emerged simultaneously, and the long uh, version of the story condenses basically to a bullet point, and that bullet point is that America became a wealthy uh, country on the backs of slavery, uh, on the backs of uh, people that were forced into labor and basically beaten uh, uh, to perform this. And the problem here is it comes from a really flimsy set of economic claims. It's a misunderstanding of the institution of slavery and how its economics performed. Uh, if you dig deep into that institution, you find that slavery is indeed profitable to a very small number of plantation owners. But the only reason that it persists and survives is because it has heavy public finance investment from the state, from the government. Uh, slavery is subsidized directly and indirectly by the federal and state governments before the Civil War. Uh, you, the most obvious example is you look at the, uh, the Fugitive Slave Act. Who is paying for the fugitive slave patrols to uh, uh, round up people that are escaping on the Underground Railroad and send them back south to uh, uh, plantations into slavery? And the answer is, uh, is very clearly there. It's a, a government subsidy. That, that's taking place. Uh, you also find military expenditures on fortifications and armaments throughout the South are not just to repel foreign invaders, they're there to put down slave revolts. Uh, so this is a massive 
public expenditure that takes place before the Civil War. And it's all to make this otherwise extremely inefficient institution, one that uh, is premised on kind of like a throwback to feudalism. Uh, and that's certainly how the slave owners saw it themselves. They saw themselves as feudal lords of a plantation, masters of a plantation, and considered capitalism a uh, an intrusive invention of uh, of British industry and northern industry and a uh, free labor economy that was antithetical to slavery. And once you start realizing that, you find out that some of these claims that are being made uh, by modern scholars and by the 1619 Project and some more things like that are, are, are not only wrong, they're just completely inverted from reality. Uh, so I'd say study these complex institutions and plow deep into the sources, but uh, slavery itself is a major area of, where there's a lot of bad information out there that comes from weak scholarship. And I think we can uh, serve the purpose of correcting that narrative uh, by digging into the history of how slavery clashed with capitalism, how abolitionists dating all the way back to Adam Smith uh, campaigned and crusaded against slavery, how uh, someone like Richard Cobden, most famous for repealing the corn laws in England and uh, delivering the doctrine of free trade, its first major policy victory worldwide. Also, after he wins that, he becomes an abolitionist and trains Frederick Douglass to follow the, the same tactics he used to advance free trade to uh, take them and apply them to fighting slavery. Uh, so this is an area that I think is very fertile for research. It's something that's badly misunderstood and misrepresented in the scholarly mainstream, which is uh, mostly just ideological at this point. So the main fallacy is saying that America, large number of people, benefited from X, when in reality, some people benefited at the expense of others, like saying, well, America really benefited from, you know, going into Afghanistan, Iraq, and all these other countries. I mean, look at Lockheed Martin's profits. Sure, sure. That, that's, that, that is the heart of this fallacy with colonialism and slavery. It, is there any other main fallacy that we want to extract that we could learn from and make sure we don't repeat the same mistake today? Well, I think you just hit the nail on the head. And what I think it's more representative of is uh, these are people that view economics as a zero-sum game. Yeah. That they, they think that there's a fixed amount of wealth in the world and it's claimed uh, by certain people and taken away from other people. It's, it's the exploiters and the exploited. It's the bourgeois and the proletariat. Uh, and really, I, I, you know, I use these terms intentionally because it does come back to a, uh, a very Marxian mindset that a lot of people uh, approach the economic past in. Uh, they cannot view uh, the distribution and use and creation of wealth, creation of resources in anything other than a material contest between the haves and the have-nots. And therefore, everything devolves to a zero-sum game when that's not reality at all. Walk us through who George Fitzhugh was and <laughs> what his justification was for uh, the continuance of uh, slave labor. Yeah. So George Fitzhugh is a slave-owning theorist from the uh, the South that uh, in the decade or so before the American Civil War, he probably becomes the single most uh, prominent um, intellectual proponent of slavery. Uh, he engages in debates with the abolitionists. So you have George Fitzhugh arguing the pro-slavery side and Wendell Phillips is arguing the anti-slavery side in a famous debate that they had with each other. Uh, 
Fitzhugh publishes a series of books, uh, two books in the 1850s, and then dozens upon dozens of articles in DeBow's Review, which was the most widely circulated and read Southern magazine at the time. And part of his theory, uh, well, really the crux of his theory, is an argument for slavery as a natural order of society. He views the market as chaotic. He views freedom as something that's extended to an undeserving and under, unworthy race of people. And he views society as something that should be uh, hierarchically structured. But the way that he comes to this, uh, this reasoning, uh, is really kind of a roundabout um, story that's often missed uh, in the way that historians discuss this issue. Because Fitzhugh is a self-described socialist. Uh, he thinks that slavery, the plantation slave system, has perfected the model of socialism because what does it do? Well, it provides for all the workers. It gives them housing. It gives them uh, food. It gives them clothing uh, and gives them tasks. He basically sees the plantation is a centralized economy uh, ruled over by a benevolent plantation owner and says that, you know, if the socialists will only look to this model, they have a way to, to plan their entire countries. Uh, if uh, factory owners would only adopt this model and he wants to export slavery into factories, uh, they have an entire way to plan uh, their economies around this. Uh, he actually makes a uh, an argument that presages directly what Karl Marx says in Das Kapital, uh, that basically that uh, wage labor is a capitalist institution uh, that exploits the, the laborer to the benefit of the capital owner. So he comes up with a theory of surplus value. He claims that this is what the capitalist seizes away from uh, the laborer in, in the amount of labor performed and does so unjustly. And he views slavery as correcting this problem. Uh, so he's kind of like this proto-Marxian theorist that draws very heavily on earlier social socialists. Uh, he writes on the, some of the French utopian socialists or his inspiration. Uh, and then Thomas Carlyle, uh, the English Tory socialist historian, are his major influences. And this is the dominant pro-slavery ideology on the eve of the Civil War. What's well, a real problem for those who say that slavery and capitalism of the laissez-faire variety are wedded at the hip, because Fitzhugh, in addition to being a socialist, uh, is an avowed enemy of Adam Smith. He's an avowed enemy of free trade. He opens the first chapter of his uh, his first major book on slavery, the Sociolo Sociology for the South, uh, not by a defense of slavery itself, but by a broadside against free markets and free trade. He says, laissez-faire is an institution of chaos in society and says, quote, is at war with all types of slavery everywhere. He says the books of Adam Smith should be, quote, cast into the fire because they will undo the slave system. When it comes to what lessons can be learned, because slavery is often thrown around, much like saying that someone belongs to the National Socialist Party of Germany. It's not about really learning the lessons. It's about making your uh, opponent in that moment feel uh, small. When it comes to what lessons can be learned from the history of slavery, what can we appreciate today? What would you say we could learn from uh, the history of slavery? Well, I'd say the first lesson and most important lesson is to study how we got rid of slavery, how the world came to view this as a bad thing, uh, how we exterminated the institution in most parts of the world today. And this is an age-old problem that goes back to ancient times. Uh, you know, slavery is an institution in biblical times. Slavery is an institution in almost every society in world history. 
it isn't really until the uh, the late 18th century Enlightenment movements that people start to actually question this institution in systematic ways. Uh, there are a few precursors to that, uh, and I, I'm certain you can find, if you go back into the ancient world, uh, people that absolutely denounce slavery. But uh, the first systematic effort to e exterminate this institution emerges in the late 18th, early 19th centuries. <clears throat> well, the lesson here is to ask the question, well, who are the people that are leading the case uh, of why slavery is, is wrong? And one of the earliest major abolitionist thinkers is Adam Smith himself. He addresses the problem of slavery in all of his major works. It's in the theory of moral sentiments. It's in The Wealth of Nations, and it's addressed in several of his surviving lectures as a college professor on questions of justice and jurisprudence. And in all three of these areas, he attacks slavery as economically destructive, fundamentally immoral, and politically corrupting. And it's that last point that uh, really gets to the heart of the matter, because he asks the question, why is slavery even when it's recognized as a moral evil, as a wrong, so difficult to get rid of? And his answer is they're basic, is that slave owners are basically rent seekers. They're an interest group. They enmesh themselves in the legislature wherever they come into power. And when they do so, what is the first thing that they, uh, they do once they've seized the control of the legislature? They start voting themselves resources from, from the public treasury to prop up and extend slavery. So Smith's really one of the first people that diagnoses slavery in a systematic way here. And this gives generations of abolitionists the tools that they need to start understanding what the problem is with slavery. The slave power is how it becomes referred to by the mid-19th century through heirs and descendants of Smithian economics. They start saying, well, slavery is, in fact, a very evil, pernicious interest group that has captured the reins of government. If you want to take it on, you need to figure out how to undermine those uh, those special interest claims that it's made. And subsequent abolitionists do that. The first attack on slavery goes after the slave trade, uh, the international slave trade itself. And this comes out of England. It's a group of, uh, of free market minded, uh, they call them political liberal Whigs, in the uh, aftermath of the American Revolution, they start to mount a case against the slave trade. Uh, the first bill is put forth in 1791. It's unsuccessful because it runs head on into the Liverpool merchant industry, which is benefiting of the slave system uh, and the slave trade system. Uh, they wage basically a 20-year campaign to abolish it and succeed in 1807 and 1808 through a series of, of uh, parliamentary acts uh, by taking on the interest group and chipping away at the institution. Well, then there's another two decade slog that they have to push through to actually abolish slavery in the British Empire. And this is when Frederick Douglass goes over to the, uh, uh, the United Kingdom in the 1840s on a speaking tour. He is introduced to several of the veterans of this movement uh, that abolished slavery in the British Empire and picks up on those tactics and realizes that there is a, a, a liberal, a classical liberal intellectual philosophy behind all of this, uh, everything that he's doing. If you read his autobiography, he directly credits Richard Cobden and John Bright for showing him the tactics that he's going to bring to the United States to fight slavery. Uh, so I guess this is another way of saying that uh, libertarians, classical liberals, free market thinkers need to and should claim this as part of our legacy. Uh, this was one of the great uh, policy 
and strategic and moral victories of the 19th century, along with the elevation of free trade, it was the elevation of the anti-slavery cause, even to the point that if you said you were a classical liberal or, or just a straight up liberal in, say, like 1850 in the British world, that meant you probably believed in three things. One is free markets and free trade. Two, anti-colonialism, anti-imperialism, and three, abolition of slavery. Those are the major planks of the liberal platform. And the fact that we succeeded so much on the abolition of slavery has meant that it's kind of faded into the background. Uh, we don't talk about it as much as a, uh, a, a part of what uh, free market theory entails anymore. Uh, and yet it's there and was there from the very beginning in Adam Smith. So is it the ideas and simply changing public opinion through spreading these ideas that slavery became weakened and then no longer is recognized on a large scale uh, institutionalized basis? Or was it people started resisting or there were technological changes that no longer made it profitable? See, all three of the above. But you need that moral foundation there. You need the moral foundation to understand why this institution is wrong. So when it starts to be challenged by other labor arrangements, uh, when the South starts to lag economically behind the rest of the country, uh, people start asking the question, well, maybe something is wrong with slavery, not only in the economic sense, but in the moral sense. So having uh, having both of those arguments there together uh, allowed the abolition movement to basically triangulate the issue and, uh, and make a very forceful case against it. Uh, now, it, it does enmesh itself in a very violent and brutal and bloody and tragic war in the Civil War. Uh, and the way that that was handled and played out, uh, uh, I guess another way of saying it is there are very few uh, people that come out of the Civil War uh, looking good. Uh, there, there are bad actors to be found all over the place. Now, the Confederacy itself uh, does go to war to defend slavery. It's actually the Union hesitates to make slavery, anti-slavery, a, uh, a component of its cause. Although on the uh, periphery, it certainly is there and it moves to the center by the end of the Civil War. Uh, so you, you find uh, several of these tactics basically coming to fruition uh, but it needed that intellectual basis there. In other words, what happened in 1865 could not have happened uh, without a previous half century of people making the intellectual case against slavery uh, to recognize that it is wrong. The reason I think this is so important is because it's usually the monetary side that's focused on when it comes to slavery, commonly mm. referred to as free labor. And the problem is you aren't compensated monetarily. But if you read Frederick Douglass's autobiography, they got allowances and they got food, water, Absolutely. clothing and shelter. So if you don't have the classical liberal libertarian understanding of it's wrong to initiate violence against peaceful people, force them to do something against their will. Well, then I'm not surprised that both Zelensky and Putin are practicing conscription. And that's not really uh, front and center at the news. I had to dig so hard to find Correct. something. Find that information. I, I go. Oh, yeah, it's actually everywhere uh, once you uh, really look for it. But first, you got to find like the keywords to uh, to to look for. So that's why I wanted to. And then one final thing. I think this is the last thing. Uh, how was the average person sold on the con? I can't imagine the average person is thinking, well, that fits you is making a good point. Uh, <laughs> uh, how is the average person uh, sold on such a blatant scam? These people can own these people. And they can't even own property or make decisions for themselves. Well, the South constructed a mythology around the slave system and a mythology around its major output, which was cotton. 
Uh, it's called the King Cotton Thesis. Uh, and this came into vogue in the 1850s. It basically claimed that cotton is such a crucial component of not only the national output, but the international world economy that uh, all other industries would come crashing down if the cotton trade did not exist. And uh, they construct the story by noting that uh, southern cotton is exported to, across the ocean to Europe, to the factories of Europe, where it's turned into textiles. It's sent to the factories in the north, turned into textiles, uh, that there are all sorts of economic arrangements in it. And the claim here was that it's so central to economic production that uh, anyone or anything that makes war on slavery is also making war on its own well-being, would undermine the world economy and throw uh, the entire country into a recession if they attack slavery. And they actually convinced themselves of this during the Civil War. Well, it turns out they were exercising another economic fallacy. Uh, they were using a single product theory of uh, production uh, to understand and interpret the entire U.S. economy. And what happens during the Civil War? Well, the Confederacy gets cut off from uh, not only national industry, but world trade by both the blockade. And then they also adopt a policy of intentionally restricting their own exports to try to lure Europe into the world, into the war on their behalf. Uh, well, what happens? England goes elsewhere and finds cotton produced in other ways. They turn to Egypt, they turn to India, they turn to the British West Indies and find cotton produced through wage labor. And that just basically bursts the entire bubble of uh, this notion that cotton is the driver of the world economy. Uh, so basically what ended up being a, a line of propaganda in the 1850s comes crashing down is a myth in the action and course of the Civil War. Now, I mentioned this because it's, uh, uh, it's pertinent to the scholarship today. Uh, many of these theorists on the left that are claiming slavery and capitalism are wedded uh, at the hip have unintentionally rehabilitated King Cotton economic ideology. Uh, they're essentially making the exact same claim that cotton was the centerpiece of American wealth and the American economy, although they, uh, they take it from an anti-slavery perspective. They're coming at it from the left, but nonetheless, they accept the economic claims of the King Cotton theorists. And all we have to do is to look at the Civil War itself as a, uh, um, a, a direct de uh, debunking of that entire economic narrative. Um, and yet we found that some of these works, uh, neo-King Cotton theorists, essentially, have uh, gone on to attain great heights in the history profession. Neo-King Cotton theorists. Is, uh, <clears throat> is that uh, people today who say, you know, war is actually good for the economy, yes. so we should we should continue uh, to funnel money to uh, Raytheon. And yeah, hundreds of thousands of people get killed, but it really gets the gears of the economy going. Yeah, it's the broken window fallacy over and over and over again. We heard the same thing, uh, the, the, the popular claim that World War II got us out of the Great Depression. Uh, wars are destructive entities. Uh, they destroy physical capital. They destroy human lives, uh, much like slavery. Uh, so, you know, here's one of the other costs, the economic cost of slavery in de denying individual freedom and denying agency to people that are suffering under this institution, the enslaved people themselves. Uh, you know, you are basically uh, the, the opportunity cost of the institution is uh, you never get to see or realize the human capital of uh, what people would produce if they were otherwise free. Uh, you see only the destruction. Uh, same thing with war. Uh, you, you end up waging a war 
maybe it attains a military outcome and you, you claim that, hey, we, we put all this money to invigorate certain uh, companies, uh, war contractors, uh, and that has jump-started their industry. Well, yes, it certainly has uh, been an infusion of armaments into, uh, into an economy, armament production. Uh, but the question we always have to ask as economists is what could that money have been spent on otherwise? What was its other mm-hmm. use that was, that never occurred, that never was realized? Uh, when we put soldiers on the battlefield, we asked the question, what would those uh, soldiers have done uh, if instead of being shot down um, in an act of war, instead of losing their lives or, or being horribly maimed, what would they have done with their lives uh, in the alternative situation? And it, it's something that we never see. So it's the seen versus the unseen uh, taken to its full fruition. One, uh, the first time I heard about the American Institute for Economic Research was when you and Ed Stringham and Jeffrey Tucker came out when it was maybe the least unpopular thing to do in my lifetime. Uh, like it, it would have been Harry Brown coming out and talking about blowback after 9-11. Yep. And then right after is you guys coming out against the lockdowns in like March of 2020. So the question is, what empirical methods or criteria can we use to determine the effectiveness of lockdowns and mandates? Well, this is a fun area that I work on in very active ways. Uh, There are all sorts of tools from econometrics. Uh, We call them causal inference techniques. And what they try to do is look for natural experiments, Uh, uh, cases where one country or one state or even sometimes one city or locale uh, deviated from the policy of lockdowns to see if uh, through that counterfactual, that real-time counterfactual, uh, they perform very differently. And this goes back all the way to March 2020. So uh, I opposed lockdowns from the beginning when the whole country was going into lockdown and when uh, they were sweeping across the world. Um, I had my reasons to be skeptical of it because I, I did, a, did some reading in the epidemiology re- uh, literature. And what first tipped me off is that as recently as 2019, the World Health Organization was publishing uh, pandemic response plans to influenza that said, above all else, do not lock down. This doesn't work. Uh, We have experience and data from the Spanish flu in 1918. We have all sorts of historical evidence that shows that every time this has been tried, it is a catastrophic failure. It doesn't deliver on what it promises to do. And oh, by the way, it's extremely susceptible to political misuse and abuse. Uh, And part of that literature also said that the way that lockdowns are argued by some of the epidemiology and health professions is entirely contingent upon these hypothetical models, uh, computer modeling. This was the Neil Ferguson Imperial College model uh, that burst onto the scene at the beginning of the pandemic and basically convinced the United States and Great Britain to go into lockdowns and then eventually the rest of the world followed. Uh, well, it turns out this was a, uh, a computer model that had some very erroneous premises behind it. Uh, For example, it didn't even account for the situation of nursing homes. Uh, It didn't account for uh, uh, all sorts of very common uh, circumstances that emerged in the first few weeks of COVID-19, which is that the elderly were especially vulnerable and the young not so much. Um, So I start reading this model and asking the question, well, why are we even following this thing? It seems like a junk model. It seems like it's poorly designed and poorly constructed, and there are no uh, real counterfactual tests in the real world 
to show why we should even listen to this Neil Ferguson guy, other than that he's on TV uh, saying that if we don't uh, lock down tomorrow, uh, tens of millions of people will die. Uh, and oh, by the way, he had done this during mad cow disease. He had done this during the, the avian flu, uh, during all these previous pandemics, and none of his predictions ever came true. Well, uh, in the first few weeks of the, the pandemic, I noticed something uh, very early on that the Ferguson model for the United States and UK had been adapted to the rest of Europe. They eventually released projections for all countries around the world on what would happen if A, they locked down, B, they had uh, kind of a lighter touch approach that had a partial lockdown, or C, they did nothing at all. They stayed open. And uh, the model assumed catastrophe if they stayed open, uh, slightly less than catastrophe if they did a mild, light touch, voluntary approach, and uh, the disease would go away. Uh, it would peak in uh, June or July 2020 and then drop to nothing if everybody locked down. Um, that was the basis of the model. And they did it country by country. But I noticed one thing. They had published results for Sweden. Sweden, as we know, did not go into lockdown. They were one of the only countries in the world that early on said, no, we're going to go the other uh, course. We're going to keep our schools open, keep businesses open, um, and just basically weather the pandemic through usual, normal public health measures. Wash your hands, stay home if you're sick, uh, try to isolate the elderly. Sweden, unfortunately, didn't get that plan into place uh, early enough, so they had the same problem in their nursing homes. But otherwise, they, they, they stayed open. And I start watching the Swedish numbers come in. And according to the Ferguson model and some of the copycats that were produced uh, shortly thereafter, Sweden was supposed to be uh, like in the throngs of uh, COVID apocalypse by around June 2020. Uh, Neil Ferguson's model was predicting somewhere in the nature of uh, 80 to 90,000 people dead by July 1st of 2020. Then I start looking at the actual statistics and Sweden has maybe two to 3,000 dead, even though they stayed open. So the catastrophe model failed in real time. The catastrophe model turned out to be based on an error. It overstated its ability to stop COVID and it understated uh, basically the ability of a free society to weather this while staying open. And through that real time test, uh, we had our direct demonstration that the lockdowns were not doing what they had been sold on what they had been uh, promised to achieve. And that realization basically uh, uh, got me to the point where um, I, I started writing and publishing on this on a regular basis uh, and became uh, pretty vocal in opposing the lockdowns. Uh, of course, Neil Ferguson, some of these modelers, they, uh, they eventually get questioned and asked about the Swedish case, why it's not following their course. And what did he do? Well, like a, uh, a good university professor, he lied. Uh, he claimed that he never ran a Sweden model. Uh, he got Imperial College's media team to deny that they had ever made these projections and claimed that they uh, they must have come from someone erroneously using his computer model uh, to project things, uh, at which point I just said, well, quick paste, here's a copy of the link on your own website where back in, uh, in March 2020, you published your Swedish data. Um, uh, you're clearly lying right now. Uh, but unfortunately, that's that's what we've been facing for the entire pandemic is uh, epidemiology modelers uh, that are wedded to this junk methodology, uh, claiming causal uh, results that they could not legitimately demonstrate uh, through the tools that they are using and ignoring the real world evidence that contradicts them.
when it comes to states in America, of the 50 states, not all of them had the same uh, lockdown uh, procedures or legislations that followed. Um, is there any correlation between strict lockdowns, heavy mask mandates, heavy vax mandates, and lower numbers? Absolutely not. And I've studied this exhaustively. Uh, I've, I've run several empirical models to try to find some pattern, any pattern that's statistically significant that shows an association between the stringency of countermeasures, mask mandates, school closures, business closures, lockdowns, uh, you name it, and better performance during COVID-19. It simply isn't there. You cannot find a statistically significant result. Uh, what you do find is that several of the harshest lockdown states, especially in the Northeast, were the, the ones that were hardest hit in the first wave. Uh, what you do find is clear evidence that they follow these lockdown models, uh, such as the Imperial College approach, and, and they tried to implement everything that Imperial College said to do, close your schools, close your businesses, tell everyone to stay home for months on end, uh, prohibit people from going out in public. Um, in California, they were arresting paddle boarders and people that were just like walking on the beach at night uh, during lockdowns. Uh, Newark, New Jersey uh, had very heavy arrest patterns, especially in like uh, minority neighborhoods of people that were not social distancing and were going outside. Uh, so all these policies that were enacted in very heavy handed draconian ways occurred simultaneously to an outbreak in the nursing homes, especially in the Northeast, uh, that was absolutely catastrophic. Uh, by the end of the first year of the pandemic, I, uh, I ran some numbers and estimated in some of the states in the Northeast, one in eight nursing home residents prior to uh, COVID-19 passed away during that first year, uh, just died of COVID-19. Those are catastrophic numbers. Well, you start asking the question, what's the reason why nursing home out outbreaks were so bad? Well, they adopted a policy that was premised around epidemiology modeling in hospitals. They thought that hospitals were going to be overwhelmed by COVID cases, and therefore they'd run out of bed space, they'd run out of rooms, run out of doctors and nurses, and then public health catastrophe uh, happens. So what did they do? Well, they followed the, the Governor Cuomo plan in New York State. Cuomo decided and ordered that hospital beds needed to preserve, be preserved and kept open as much as possible. And one of his ways of doing this was to quickly discharge COVID patients, out, uh, basically move COVID patients out of the hospitals and into other facilities to convalesce. Uh, so as soon as they uh, uh, had been stabilized, let's get them out of the hospitals and free up the beds for this coming wave of COVID patients that never quite arrived. Uh, well, what did he do? He said that the convalescent facilities need to include nursing homes. So he passed an order that forced nursing homes to readmit COVID positive patients that were still on the recovery. You put elderly COVID carriers into nursing homes, and these are closed facilities, and suddenly COVID is spread to the staff. Suddenly it's spreading to the ventilation systems. And next thing you know, the entire nursing home has come down with a COVID outbreak our single most vulnerable population, all because he tried to centrally plan convalescent facilities by using nursing homes as the overflow. Uh, so what we have is a clear demonstration, not only that lockdowns did not work, we cannot find any empirical evidence of that. We do know empirically that they made the nursing home situation significantly worse than it would have been had they simply done nothing.
one of uh, one more thing about the masks. I remember in uh, probably March of 2020, uh, my friends and I went to our favorite uh, place in downtown Chandler, yep. and they said, uh, "Hey guys, we do require masks." And I looked around and I saw everyone sitting down. And I go, even though no one's wearing them, they go, "You just have to wear them to your table." And I go, "Well, this is." Well, we, we, I have to wear them to walk to that seat that I could see over there, and we're going to sit there for four hours, as we have every weekend for the last, I don't know, two two or three years. And this was the policy. So I said, well, that's crazy. A lot of p- places in Arizona were doing that on the orders of Governor Doug Ducey. They even uh, did it in New York when I went there, and it was just unbelievable. So if I wear a cloth mask, Am I less likely, just as likely, more likely to contract COVID-19 than if I had not worn one at all? Well, that's the absurdity that we found uh, through this entire charade of the past two years. As prior to COVID-19, the medical literature on masking was extremely ambiguous. And that's a nice way of saying that they had not found clear, statistically significant results that masks achieve what they promised to achieve. In fact, the Neil Ferguson model out of Imperial College, the paper it was based on, if you read the second to last paragraph of that paper, it says, we don't include masking in our uh, our uh, our model because we don't have enough data or evidence to assume either way that this works. And that was the state of the academic literature before COVID-19. Well, COVID came along and all of a sudden it became politically fashionable to claim that masks work. So they started putting out all these junk studies uh, badly designed. Uh, Some of them were survey instruments. Some of them were uh, uh, purported models that used incorrect data, uh, like the IHME um, model that came out of the University of Washington uh, was claiming that masks would save tens of thousands of lives. And it turned out that their formulas in the model were uh, were premised on uh, months old mask usage rates. So uh, they were they were using numbers from the beginning of the pandemic when nobody was wearing a mask to make projections in like October, November of 2020, at which point uh, the masking rates in the public were about 90 percent. Uh, So they were claiming that there were all these gains to be had by adopting mask policies that people were already using. It just turned out that those policies didn't work. Uh, They they didn't uh, deliver on anything that was uh, clearly claimed on them, but they did become a very powerful political signal. Uh, It became a way to virtue signal as you walk around in public by wearing a mask, uh, by uh, uh, dressing up in these rituals, and uh, even more so by screaming at people who were violating the rituals. Uh, you know, we we all saw the uh, someone like driving along the road in a private car, windows up and everything, single driver, and they're wearing a mask. And you're asking the question, well, what's the purpose of this? Uh, it's pseudoscience. It is uh, uh, purely ritualistic uh, behavior designed to signal that, hey, I am complying with COVID-19. I'm a good uh, follower of Dr. Fauci. And uh, and you're lesser than me because you're not uh, doing this type of, uh, of ritual. Uh, so, so what we ended up doing, unfortunately, is because there was a mad rush to vindicate the science of masks, it created a uh, uh, an over perception of their effectiveness in the general public. Uh, the media line became that masks work. And what happens? Well, people put their faith in masks and then start taking riskier behaviors thinking that the mask is going to help them and save them. 
when it turns out it's just this little flimsy piece of cloth or tissue paper or whatever they're made of, uh, and people are going out in public and the masks really aren't delivering anything other than uh, uh, maybe in some very, very narrow situations. Like uh, there's a reason that we wear masks in doctor's offices. And that's mainly because the doctor uh, and the nurse and the medical facility uh, personnel, they do not want to contaminate their patients with their own exhaled breath and droplets that come from that. That's why they wear masks. Uh, it's a practice during surgery. But in the general public, it's never been demonstrated. And the, uh, the studies, I've read several of them, looked through uh, their methodology. And I'll just say this, it's extremely flimsy. It's extremely dependent upon assumptions that were made prior to the study's uh, design and execution uh, that basically pre-assume the effectiveness of masks and then purport to validate their own results. Yeah. And it's a two-year cost of not being able to see other people's facial expressions. Imagine your favorite TV show. Everyone's wearing masks. You can really hear what they're saying. But, uh, you know, at least uh, they uh, seem safe. Uh, SNL is the best. You know, they don't wear masks throughout the whole show until the very end when they and say they the goodbye. <laughs> and, and, and then they uh, they all uh, come out in it. Um, if I get the vaccine, I'm less likely to get COVID-19. True or false? I'd say generally true to an extent uh, because it's been very uh, dependent on the specific variants. Uh, I'm not an immunologist. I'm not a vaccine scientist, so I don't know the uh, the mechanisms underlying it. Uh, but the everything that I've seen is that the initial variants that they were designed to uh, combat, they ended up being relatively effective against. Uh, what happens is this is a disease, just like any other coronavirus, it mutates. Uh, so what you find out is that the vaccine itself uh, is not a preventative against the mutants. Uh, it's not a preventative of all these other variants. And we've learned that uh, in real time that uh, people that have been vaccinated uh, have gotten COVID of a different variant six months later or three months later or maybe a year later. Uh, but that's the nature of this particular type of virus from everything that I've heard and read in the medical literature. Um, I do generally think that, that the, uh, uh, the vaccines were a good technological innovation to have. Uh, in the sense that they do seem to reduce the severity of the disease, especially among the elderly, the most vulnerable. Uh, at the same time, the way that the government rolled them out uh, was uh, catastrophically brain dead uh, in the way that it, uh, it planned its economics of it, uh, understood public perception of it. And, and this goes even back before they started mandating it. Uh, when they did the initial rollout, if you remember, uh, uh, there was a moment, I think it was around March or April of 2021, when uh, just as they are opening up eligibility to non-essential workers, to non-elderly, uh, to non-vulnerable people, uh, the government briefly suspended the, uh, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Uh, and what it did is it put uh, uh, vaccine access on the shelf for almost a month. As uh, and they were investigating some medical uh, uh, side effects, and and yes, there are side effects for uh, from almost any type of vaccine for any disease. Uh, but it's always like a, a personal risk assessment you want to take. Uh, but you can trace almost to the moment that uh, Fauci and the CDC and FDA announced that they were suspending the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. That's when vaccine uptake in the United States started to plummet uh, mm -hmm. almost overnight. Uh, then they start mandating it and mandating it in ways that are not particularly constructive, mandating boosters, mandating uh, vaccination among people that uh, are in the lowest vulnerability groups, so, i.e. young people. Uh, 
all because it becomes a mechanism for, for power rather than actually fighting the disease. So they aren't paying attention to what's being delivered uh, through the vaccine itself, uh, which should be a, a tool to help people uh, survive the disease, to help improve their chances of, of having a, um, a very mild case of COVID-19 if they encounter it, whether it's the current variant or a future variant. And the vaccines do seem to do that. Uh, but the way that they, they took it was like this top-down centralized command and control. And, and all they ended up doing was undermining the public's trust and confidence in vaccines uh, and rolling it out in the most slipshod, haphazard way imaginable, uh, just as central planners always do. And hence, we are in the situation that we are in. So do you think that uh, Fauci was telling the truth when he was on 60 Minutes and he said people should not be wearing masks? It might block a little droplet but other than that it's an overreaction is that actually him telling the reality of uh what people should have been doing at the time Uh, i mean i'll be blunt i think fauci just makes it up as he goes yeah i think fauci is uh, is basically a fraud as it comes to uh scientific knowledge i mean at one point yeah he trained in in allergies and, and disease science and uh and he probably uh made medical contributions at some point in his career uh, but he became a bureaucrat. He became a government bureaucrat. And I've seen direct evidence of this in the Freedom of Information Act files that I've gotten. Uh, Fauci is best understood as a public health official who reads the cues from the media, including what the media wants to be argued, summarizes them and has his aide summarize them in bullet points. And then he repeats them back to the same media and they use that as validation of their already existing point. This is what happened in the lockdown science and in the aftermath of the Great Barrington Declaration. Uh, We found that as soon as the declaration went out, Fauci and the other NIH officials had an email chain where they were basically basically saying, well, what are we going to do as a response to this? Uh, Because it's challenging lockdown science. And uh, Francis Collins sent out this directive that says uh, we need to uh, take down these fringe epidemiologists and, uh, and discredit them. Well, the very first responses that come from Fauci, he is cutting and pasting articles from The Nation magazine, from Wired magazine, uh, NPR, all these media outlets uh, that are extolling the virtues of lockdowns and sending it to his staff and say, like, put these into bullet points. They give him the bullet points and he reads the media's articles back to them. Mm-hmm. And they say, look, see, Dr. Fauci affirmed us. That's not science. That's a circular echo chamber. And I think that's been his entire approach to the pandemic since day one. Were there, final COVID question, were there any uh, studies from Pfizer or Moderna or the CDC that said people, uh, uh, X number of people are not getting vaccinated, X number of people will die as a result of not getting vaccinated. Is there something we can put to the test? Because the White House literally said, for the unvaccinated, you're looking forward to a winter of death and death something. And like, yeah, 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 something like that. And I, I just, I'm not seeing it. But then again, maybe I'm not. I feel like it would be being reported by like all the CNNs of the world uh, if, if that were happening. How can we now test uh, whether or not all those people should have been mandated to get the shot or not? Well, I, th- I think it ultimately comes down to a personal decision. I mean, you know your own health circumstances better than anyone else. Um, I haven't, uh, again, I'm not a, a virologist. I'm not an immunologist. I don't st- uh, study that aspect of medical sciences. I study health economics uh, quite a bit, and I st- just out of necessity, and I study the policies to implement these things. And I think what's uh, where the vaccine issue has gone awry is the policy decisions, not the science itself behind it. 
the policy decisions have basically uh, misrepresented to the public what uh, what is at stake here. Uh, they oversold the long-term preventative effect of the vaccines, and they oversold uh, the benefits of the mandates and the ability to execute on a mandate. Uh, and that just created just a classic central planning problem uh, with all the public choice attributes that come into play, with all of the incompetencies that we know of bureaucracy. Uh, I, I guess another way of saying it would be, uh, I no more trust the government to plan its way through a pandemic than I would trust it to plan its way through an economic recession. Our data from the CDC today suggests, um, you know, that that vaccinated people do not carry the virus, don't get sick, um, and, and that it's not just in the clinical trials, but it's also in real world data. You wrote a book with Jason Brennan titled Cracks in the Ivory Tower. What is your thesis in that book? Yeah. So the gist of Cracks in the Ivory Tower is looking at the institutions of academia, institutions of higher ed, uh, from a public choice perspective, and asking what are the incentive structures that yield uh, many of the problems we see with higher ed. If you read the higher ed press, we know that the problems abound. There are too many PhD seekers uh, uh, for too few jobs, for example. Uh, we know that universities are a very inefficient way of delivering knowledge to students. We know that uh, students don't retain most of what they learn in the classroom. We know that cheating is rampant. Uh, we know that uh, degrees are sold and all these vague platitudes and like how you're going to improve yourself and get this uh, uh, career and uh, ideas and critical thinking that uh, yields uh, like great riches and intellectual rewards. Uh, and instead, what students are doing is they're graduating with a giant pile of debt and very little in the way of economic prospects. Uh, we know that um, internal to the university system uh, that fraud is actually not only tolerated, sometimes it's celebrated and rewarded uh, in academic works. Uh, so we're asking the question, why are these things the case? Why are these problems existent and real? Uh, well, it turns out the conventional answers are all uh, in, a, in a category we, we refer to as kind of like the conspiracy theory versions, uh, or in some cases, uh, uh, we call them the poltergeist uh, theories of how higher ed works. And these are things like, uh, well, higher ed uh, uh, yields immoral and problematic and economically inefficient results in institutional dysfunction because it's been corporatized or it's been taken over by neoliberalism. Ask the question, well, where are all these neoliberals that uh, are supposedly running the universities? And what you get is an answer that's real similar to the South Park episode, the underwear gnomes, uh, underpants gnomes. Uh, this is a famous episode where the underpants gnomes come along. They, they claim they're going to seize the underpants. Then there's a big question mark in the middle. And then the end says profit. Well, I say uh, the same thing is going on in these theories of higher ed. It's like higher ed is corporatized, big question mark in the middle. Um, neoliberal profit is the explanation for all the problems. So the evidence just isn't there. What Jason and I do in the book is we ask, well, what are the real institutional incentives that cause some of these problems to emerge? And the answer turns out to be that human beings, rational, self-acting, self-interested human beings do in fact respond to good and bad incentive structures. And if the incentives of higher ed are to hire as many people in your department, whether or not students want to take your classes, then that's what you're going to do. 
If the incentives of higher ed are to expand the administrative bureaucracy, even if it means jacking up tuition on students and asking them to pay for these do-nothing functionary jobs that just basically absorb resources and bloat, uh, and that's what higher ed's going to do. Uh, so it's bad institutional designs that basically turn higher ed into a very large-scale government bureaucracy. And we go through step-by-step step and area of the university by area of the university and identify these bad institutional designs. And it turns out if you empirically investigate them, guess what? They explain most of the problems. Who was Lysander Spooner and what can he teach us about money and currency? Right. So Lysander Spooner is uh, probably one of my favorite abolitionists. Uh, he is a 19th century classical liberal proto-libertarian thinker. Uh, comes out of Massachusetts. Uh, he's very active on the New England scene. Uh, he trains as an attorney. He apprentices as an attorney, uh, but he's a natural rights and natural law theorist attorney and basically asks the question, uh, why do all of these institutions exist that uh, commit uh, injustices under the name of the law? And says, well, consistent with the natural law, unjust actions by the government are, uh, are violations. They're violations of right. Uh, in fact, they are self-discrediting. He basically takes the Lockean principles of the Declaration of, of Independence to their radical, logical, philosophical end and, and basically concludes that if the government is doing something unjust, it's violated its own uh, basic premise of existence. It's violated mm. its own notion of a, uh, uh, an entity that exists to uphold and protect rights. Uh, so the foremost example of this that he sees is slavery. Uh, so he starts in the abolition movement. And as an abolitionist, I mean, this guy is a badass. There's no other way to say it. Uh, so he, he writes books and pamphlets articulating a legal theory for why slavery should be deemed unconstitutional. And that includes acknowledging the, the passages of the Constitution that seem to sanction slavery. Uh, and he's basically saying, well, uh, they're, they're a violation of a more uh, fundamental layer of rights. Uh, therefore, they cannot be uh, exercised and operated in the, this pattern. And it's a very influential legal theory of his day. He, he actually makes a convert of Frederick Douglass, who reads his book and then uh, uh, gives the famous speech on the, the 4th of July in 1854, where he, he declares that the Constitution properly understood is a great and glorious liberty document. What else does uh, Lysander Spooner do? Uh, he becomes famous in New England for offering his legal services, often free of charge, to fugitive slaves and to abolitionists that harbored fugitive slaves that helped them escape the South uh, because they could be facing prosecution from the federal government. Uh, there was a famous case in, uh, in Boston, Massachusetts. A fugitive named Anthony Burns is uh, arrested in Boston, which is an abolitionist city at the time. But it's uh, under the Fugitive Slave Act, so it's the federal government. Federal government actually de deploys thousands of troops, military troops on the streets of Boston to escort Burns to a ship where he's going to be taken back to slavery in the South. The abolitionists launch a plan where they're going to spring Burns from his jail cell at the federal courthouse. And they stage a diversionary abolitionist rally at Fannel Hall across the uh, the street from it. Fannel Hall is the famous uh, meeting house where uh, all the speeches are made in the American Revolution. No taxation without representation. Uh, so it's steeped in the tradition of American liberty. And the abolitionists are staging a rally. Uh, but it's really a diversion 
for a group of them sneak out the back and they go charge on the courthouse during the changing of the guard. Unfortunately, the plan goes awry and uh, um, shots are fired uh, during the mob rush of the courthouse uh, and it causes uh, the abolitionists to disperse because now they're going to be accused of murder uh, because one of the, uh, the federal marshals is, is, is hit. Uh, well, Lysander Spooner was the guy that had a network of lawyers ready to help the abolitionists go into hiding uh, and avoid prosecution from the government and to mount legal defense and, and file all these paperwork for them. Uh, he tried to do the same thing uh, for uh, some of the conspirators uh, that were involved in the John Brown raid on Harper's Ferry. Uh, so really fascinating guy. Uh puts his, his tools uh, and his intellect in his trade uh, to work for good. Uh, the problem is it actually comes at a, a personal expense to him. He does, he's not a wealthy man. Uh, he does not get rich by offering free legal services to fugitive slaves. Uh, but uh, that's basically his career. Uh, what he does after the Civil War is he starts shifting to other issues. And in the 1870s, he, uh, he starts working on monetary theory. Uh, which is a big issue at the time because, you know, it's a, the gold standard, but it's being challenged by the silver movement, uh, debasement of currencies. And what does Spooner do? Well, he, he researches and reads up on it. And he's one of the early theorists that discovers the Scottish free banking system that had existed uh, half a century earlier in Scotland. Scotland was under a different set of rules than the Bank of England. And what it did is it set up, it allowed basically a de facto situation of competitive private currencies to operate in some parts of Scotland. And uh, there's some regulation on it, but it had a much looser regulatory system than England. And then all of this is eventually quashed in the 1840s, uh, where the Bank of England succeeds in getting uh, Parliament uh, to regulate uh, the Scottish system. Uh, but Spooner goes back and does some research on this, and he finds that every time there was a recession or depression uh, during the, uh, the free banking era in Scotland, Scotland weathers the crisis much better than England. And he attributes this to free market competition in currencies. So in 1876, he writes two books, basically laying out the free banking history of Scotland and arguing for a thesis of why private entities, any private entity should be permitted on the open market uh, to issue a private currency. And he basically says, let the market competition be between them decide which currency currencies sink, which currencies survive. Uh, and that in itself will bring robust stability in ways that uh, the federal banking system has not. Uh, so it's a free banking argument written in 1876, uh, published in these uh, relatively obscure serialized forms of books that we thought that uh, were lost after Spooner died. Uh, part of his papers were destroyed in a fire around the turn of the century, and the assumption had always been that uh, these books had been lost with them. Uh, well, I rediscovered them in uh, a couple of archives, bits and pieces, and uh, was able to piece back together the entire manuscript. Uh, and what it uh, eventually uh, amounts to is uh, uh, Spooner presages F.A. Hayek's theorizing on free banking, which comes out a century later in the 1970s. And F.A. Hayek is the presage uh, theorist to cryptocurrency and uh, competitive currencies that we have today that are emerging. Uh, so I call Lysander Spooner basically like the grandfather of, of Bitcoin in this sense. What was your biggest takeaway from researching your book, The Best of Karl Marx? <laughs> biggest takeaway uh, from that is probably 
uh, really fleshing out something that I had long suspected and had seen many sides from uh, of Karl Marx. And that is that Marx himself was a pretty obscure figure in his own lifespan. Uh, you know, he's treated today as like this intellectual giant of the 19th century. He's put on par with, uh, he's like the social science equivalents of Charles Darwin uh, or one of these other major thinkers of the mid 19th century. And Darwin lived at the same time as Marx. But there's a difference here. Everybody read Darwin. Darwin was influential in his lifespan. Uh, uh, other scientists picked up on his research agenda and worked with it. Karl Marx was this kind of fringe peripheral weirdo um, who lived in squalor and wrote these manifestos claiming to correct everything that he said was wrong about economics. But the only people that are reading them are fellow socialists uh, on the very periphery of society. And it persists this way for another 30, 35 years or so after Marx dies. So Marx dies in 1883 uh, basically as an unknown, except for among his internal circle of followers. Uh, when economists start to notice Marx in the decade after his death, uh, so the first rebuttals of him come from economists in 1884 and 1885. Um, and the, the main theme of them is that Marx, by relying on the labor theory of value, was now obsolete because the marginal revolution had occurred. Uh, we had discovered and solved the problem of value. Value is not assigned by work performed. Value is, of, sir, uh, is, uh, is derived from subjective preferences and subje subjective decisions made on the margin, made with reflect to the next uh, uh, unit of consumption. Uh, this is discovered simultaneously by a couple of economists in 1871. Uh, so right after Das Kapital was published, and over the course of about two decades, it sweeps the economic profession by storm. By 1890, uh, the marginal revolution has been absorbed into economics and people are reading this and then they read Marx and say, well, his entire system falls apart because it was premised on an old way of thinking that's now been debunked. So by the turn of the century, the typical economist response to Karl Marx is this guy's obsolete. Why are we paying attention to him? John Maynard Keynes even writes that Das Kapital is an obsolete textbook of no interest to the world today. It's from an earlier time. It's been discredited. And yet we look today, Karl Marx is on the map. He's everywhere in the universities. He's one of the most cited figures across the humanities and social sciences, uh, arguably the most influential thinker of that era in the way that we look at it uh, today. So ask the question, why is this the case? And this is where I tease out at the very beginning of, uh, of doing this uh, uh, compilation, The Best of Karl Marx. And the answer is Vladimir Lenin put Marx on the map. He took this obscure theorist of socialism and a very particular brand of socialism uh, that he adhered to. He was a follower of Marx. And in 1917, by staging a coup d'etat and seizing control of the government of a major world power, Russia, uh, he was able to take the resources of the Russian state and use them uh, to basically propagate and promote Marxism as a serious intellectual doctrine after it had already been defeated in the economics profession. And after a half century of doing that, sure enough, it took hold in other professions besides economics, other disciplines besides economics. Uh, so that discovery and really teasing that out, and I've since uh, empirically tested it through citation counts, and it turns out it's absolutely true. Lenin puts Marx on the map.
interesting implications for how we can get the world to find out about Mises. All right, final question. Uh, many people will say that those who advocate freedom are forgetting about uh, all the other things in life, spirituality, having a family, doing what's best for your nation, making sure other people have equal opportunities. Why is economic freedom, why is freedom in general important? Well, I say the economic freedom goes hand in hand with the moral case, uh, moral case for liberty. Um, this is something that's been articulated in multiple different approaches. I'm not going to endorse any one theorist. I mean, Ayn Rand is very famous for making a moral case for markets, but so is Adam Smith. They come at it at very different angles. Uh, but the idea here is that there are underlying concepts of rights. Uh, the idea here is that there are uh, underlying recognition of, uh, so for, for example, take the case of property rights. Uh, I recognize and I can intuit a moral wrong in a Smithian sense by observing somebody getting mugged across the street. And I intuit that in part because I know that person is being deprived of what is rightfully theirs, their property at gunpoint or at knife point. And I would not want that to happen to me. And I can morally intuit that that person that's being mugged, if they saw me in that same situation, I was being mugged, they would not want the same thing that's happening to them to happen to me. So there's a, a reciprocity in moral intuition that occurs there. And this is key to Smithian uh, uh, moral philosophy as well as Smithian economics, is recognition of this moral reciprocity. And what it means is I have an intuition to intervene and help that person that's being wronged, uh, to help restore uh, uh, their rights to stop the wrongdoing uh, from occurring to any way that I can. And that may be, maybe I step in and confront the mugger. It may mean that maybe I pull out a cell phone and call uh, the police or an authority that can come in and and stop this crime from occurring. But I, I do that out of a moral intuition. Uh, that moral intuition is very complementary to an economic intuition that property rights should be robust. And we could do this in all sorts of other categories of liberty. Uh, subjective preferences in, in how I choose to spend my money um, also has a moral component to it, uh, a recognition of my individual volition that comes out of that. Uh, the valuation of life has a moral component, uh, but it's also conducive to a good functioning system of economic freedom where we know that uh, rights are going to be respected under a systematized rule of law. Uh, these things go hand in hand uh, together uh, for, for very specific reasons that uh, in order for one to thrive, the other also needs to be present there. And, and what you find is societies where uh, you lose a respect for property rights, you lose a respect for the rule of law, you lose a respect for life itself and start uh, infringing upon individual decisions and telling people, no, you cannot do this. Or we're going to throw you in jail or send you off to the gulag. Those are areas where economic freedom diminishes as well. And oftentimes it's a it's a very complex, murky relationship, uh, but you can't have one and not the other. Uh, so there's a symbiosis that I would argue is operating between the two of them. And, uh, you know, if we want to call this virtue libertarianism, uh, I'm not crazy about any particular term, but I, I think it is implicit there. And it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the interview. Uh, you look at the moral cause of liberalism in the mid 19th century. Free markets, free trade, anti-imperialism, and abolitionism. There's a free market component and there's a moral component that unites all three of those things uh, together on a, uh, on a firm philosophical basis. And we see that carrying forward today. 
Uh, we see derivatives of anti-imperialism today come in or are aversion to war or aversion to violence. Uh, we see derivatives of anti-slavery and abolitionism uh, carrying through today in our aversion to discrimination, whether it's on racial terms or other terms, uh, forms of collectivist bigotry. And then we see the intuition of free markets carrying forward today, not only in those issues are still with us, free trade is certainly still with us, uh, but we see a moral wrong when people are deprived of their property by force or told that they uh, cannot exercise their rights over their property uh, because of government regulation or that property is confiscated and taken away by taxation. Uh, there's as much of a moral case as there is as a functioning economic case. And that's basically where I, I, I fall on those issues. That, uh, you need both of it, uh, both components working together in order for it to be functional. Check out the American Institute for Economic Research. Today's guest was Dr. Philip W. Magnus. Links will be in the description below. Thanks to everyone for watching Keith Knight, Don't Tread on Anyone in the Libertarian Institute. Dr. Magnus, thank you so much for your time. Thank you again for having me.